associated with it. We don't just want to do things, we, we want to provide the biblical grounds for them. Uh, we, we do strive, uh, by God's grace, to apply the scriptures. That's the only way we can lead with confidence. It's the only way I can stand up in front of a church when half of the church disagrees or disowns my position. How do I stand up the next Sunday and continue to serve with a clear conscience? It's because I, by the best of my ability and by God's grace, I can see that what we're doing is in line with the scriptures. That's all that matters to me. And I hope that's not offensive to you, uh, but that is what matters to me. It's what matters to the elders, that God's word would be honored and obeyed and, uh, and observed and applied. So here's the reality is that it's not enough for you to hear a news flash September 19th, I believe there was, was the last one. We had some more, and there's emergency cabinet meetings. It's not enough for you to hear a, a governmental uh, announcement and then to find out reactively from us what we're going to do. That's a difficult way to live. And all through the summer, I was getting texts or messages, hey, what's going to happen with this latest announcement? And so what we're hoping to do is provide you a proactive position so that you know barring some catastrophe or some special announcement, you know what's going to happen with your church. And I do believe that's one of the distinguishing marks of the church as an institution over the last 2,000 years. A lot has changed culturally in 2,000 years. But the church, although it has gone through iterations that have been more or less good, the church has always been there. And today, the church in Canada, we have our flaws too. We have our blind spots. We have our issues. We're not here to say the church is in no need of reformation. In fact, one of the things that defined the reformation was to say always or continually reforming. We want to get better. We want to get more holy. We want to get more in line with God. We're not saying that we are there now. But what we are saying is that the church must, by God's grace, be who she is created to be. So that's our goal. So we're giving you a proactive plan so that you can know, despite what changes sometimes hour to hour in the culture, is not changing hour to hour in the church. Uh, this will make clear the road that we're going to walk. And for some of you, it will make clear the road that we have already walked. And sometimes we don't always get to lay out the re rationale or the background for some of the decisions that are made or some of the repercussions and consequences, which... We have reaped some consequences for the decisions we've made. Okay, so just to make that clear, uh, we're in a new location. That was of no fault of our own. The theater is not operating at all. So park was great, and now that it's getting chillier, we wanted an indoor space. So we're in a new location uh, because of COVID restriction. We are looking for a new oversight church, not a new denomination, just another church inside the denomination to help us with our charitable processing. That's a consequence of our decision for navigating COVID-19, uh, which includes uh, a new financial oversight as well, which is why we've been talking about how, how to make up checks and direct deposit and all that. These are consequences of decisions we've already made. So we want to help you see the biblical rationale for why we did those. We're not just in there throwing darts at a dartboard like, what should we do this Sunday? <laughs> We're not doing that. Okay, It may seem like that, and you might be right to feel that way, but... We are navigating by God's grace the word. So, first I want to share with you the standpoint of our instruction. 
This is so key because people, they confuse different areas in society as to what their jurisdiction is. So the standpoint of our instruction as elders is elders. So the three men that are elders in this church are myself, Kevin Shaw, and Roland Taylor. They've been approved and commissioned by you, and we have gladly taken up that office. We, we represent a very specific office. The office is known as the office of the elder. It's a specific office in a specific place. I've said this to people, that I am not an elder at Calvary Bible Church in Smith Falls. I'm not an elder there. I'm not an elder wherever I go. I am an elder in this congregation at this time in history. So I'm not an elder of the church in Canada. I'm not an elder of some little Bible study that I might attend. I'm an elder over this church. It's a specific office with a specific jurisdiction. And so we represent to you the office over this church. I am not your dad, unless you're Wynn, Hank, Lewis, or Bernice. <laughs> I'm not your husband, unless you're Shannon. I am, to you, to the vast majority of you, primarily an elder, or, and I, I'm, a, I'm a friend as well. But that's the way that this congregation relates to me. So my authority it, it goes only so far as it, to oversee this church, which means to execute the office by faithfully applying and observing the scriptures as God's instruction to his people. 1 Peter 5, verse 1. Look in there in your Bibles if you have them open. Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder, and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Verse 2. This is the exhortation. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion or not begrudgingly, not because you feel like you have to, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, so not for money primarily, but eagerly because you feel compelled to do it. Not domineering those in your charge. That is so critical. Not domineering, not bossing you around, not manipulating you or controlling you. But as a shepherd would, being an example to the flock, so much of oversight is wrapped up in being an example. So we do not compel you or manipulate you into whatever it is that we're doing. We set an example and we apply the scriptures. And when the chief shepherd appears, that is Jesus Christ, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. So it's a temporary office. We're going to do this job until the Lord moves us on somewhere else or until the chief shepherd appears. Then we're done. Then we're done that job because when the chief shepherd appears, he does not need under shepherds. He will do it all himself. And so it says that we are responsible to those who are among us. I have lots of good Christian friends outside of this church. I'm not their pastor. I'm not their elder. I am an elder to those who would recognize me as an elder. I don't even assert my eldership over any individual. My eldership is over this church, and you regard me as an elder insofar as you regard yourself a member of this church. Do you see how that works? I do not impose my eldership upon any one person. Um, the, the scriptures teach 
in two places, Hebrews 13 and 1 Thessalonians 5, that it is the job of the congregant or the Christian to submit willingly to the elder. The elders are told, go set an example, and the Christians are told, submit cheerfully to that example. And honor your elders and your leaders, uh, for they are keeping watch over your souls. In other words, if you want to belong to a church in a way that's biblical, you need to uh, um, evaluate the eldership and say, is this biblical? Is this Christian? Is this true to the scriptures? And if so, then submit to it. It's not because we are saying we're in charge. It's because you are saying, I submit to what God is doing through you in this church. That's Hebrews 13, 17, and 1 Thessalonians 5. And so that's critical because I don't have charge or authority over Christians who do not consider themselves a part of this church. So I am in no way speaking to the broader church right now, unless they want to listen. I'm speaking to this congregation on behalf of our elders as to what direction we are going to go. And so from the moment that the lockdown began, which is the theater closed, we had our last service March 6th or something. And the next week I heard that the theater closed down. So there's like no option there. It's like, you're just out. And it was snowy back then. And so we went immediately to a Facebook format and then to Zoom. And uh, we conducted a number of services that way. And I'm so thankful that so many of you tuned in and really held together what God had been doing among us. But from a couple weeks after that began, our elders began to formulate a strategy to return to worship. Because as many of you recognize, you know, we didn't know the extent of the disease or its effects or its mortality rate or any of those things. And so we, like all most other churches, said, you know, we'll flatten the curve and so forth, as they said. And as that began to roll out, we began to say, okay, What's our strategy to return to worship? Because by our biblical convictions, that was the default for church. So it began a, a, to take priority in our weekly elders meetings. How are we going to return to worship? And as you know, when, when the group size limit was raised to five, then the elders met just three of us. Okay? Very small church gathering. And we did our Zoom call then. And then we began to invite our wives and a small number of you who came when the group limit was 10 or 15, because what we wanted to do was we wanted to set our foot forward to say, this is the direction we're going. We are going to meet in person again, and we will do it gradually in order to help people come back to that reality. Here's the part of the verse that is so critical, and I want to make a, maybe not a disclaimer, but make something very clear. It says, shepherd the flock among you, exercising oversight. If you are an elder, or if you aspire to be an elder, or if you aspire to be a leader, oversight is critical. Oversight means you make decisions for A and not B, B and not C, A and B and not C, A and D and not B and C. You must oversee, which requires making decisions. If you are a leader or an elder, you must lead and govern or resign. That's what that comes down to. If you're not going to do anything, then you need to resign because you are not exercising oversight. You need to make decisions on behalf of the church. And we are accountable for those decisions. Make no mistake. Decisions are not made lightly on behalf of God's church. This is the bride of Christ. This is the precious, redeemed people of God. It is not a light thing to make decisions on behalf of the church. 
But nonetheless, we must not shrink back and bury our heads in the sand and say, let somebody else deal with it. And so for many of you, you're saying, I don't like that you're dealing with this. I want you to be preaching Acts this morning. Some of you are saying, this should have been done back in July. And either one of you may be right. But the fact is, we had to make a decision one way or the other. So thank you for quietly and respectfully listening, whether you are of either of those mindsets. You're very welcome. <laughs> <laughs> and future, I'm trying to keep the one So we did make a conscious decision to continue and to return to worship. Now, this will explain some of what happened uh, over the summer. This raised concern from our oversight church, Brookside Baptist in Canada. They got in touch with us very early on and said, we noticed that you put up YouTube videos. They started speaking about group limits and social distancing and masks and so forth, and they started citing what was required. Well, we were able to say, going through those, that we actually did follow all the protocols. The masks were not mandatory when we met. We were socially distanced, and we kept the group limit very small. Nonetheless, we were told by Brookside, do not hold any more in-person worship services until and we got a list of requirements uh, that I can assure you was far above uh, what was required from public health. And so what they said was, if you are a part of our ministry and you are not submitting to our approach to ministry, we can't work together. And so as we began to look at what they were asking for to be comfortable with us worshiping, we said, A, not only is that going to be we're probably not going to satisfy you. But B, if there's a second wave, this was back in August, we said if a so-called second wave approaches, our suspicion is that you folks are probably going to go back to a lockdown situation. And I said, just for reference sake, we won't. Uh, we're going to continue worshiping. And so, that well, that, that was a point of clarity. I mean, God, I'm so thankful for clarity sometimes. Where it's like, let's not, let's not drag each other into places that we're not comfortable going. They didn't want to come with us on our journey, and we didn't want to go with them on theirs. And so they graciously said, we want to let you be free to serve God in the way you think, and us as well. And so that precipitated the parting of ways uh, that has taken place, which is why we're looking for another church. And, and again, I got some here, here's, and some amen, so that's good. We'll put a stamp on that. And on. Now, based on those priorities of worship... We are looking for a new church that shares those priorities, and there are lots. There are lots of churches that share those priorities. Now, some of you might ask about what I just stated. Why not attempt to comply? Why not attempt to comply with what they're asking? Well, for an example, uh, Wendy's property, which we used for a, a couple months, had this beautiful screened-in porch. Three walls were screens, and one wall was of the house. And it was a wonderful place to worship, even under the rain. And we made, we made a call to the health unit, and they said, that counts as an outdoor meeting space. Brookside said, we don't count that as an outdoor meeting space. So that's an example where it's like even when you're trying to comply to health unit uh, standards, it's still not going to be enough for some people. And so we said, well, there's no way we're going to satisfy you, so, so we're not, we're not going to drag you through the stress of trying to do that. Now, I will explain a little bit more about uh, compliance with measures and, and how that applies to the church and what our convictions are there. But again, these are leadership decisions which may have been upsetting for some or confusing for others, and we grant that and we accept that. Uh, we accept the responsibility of making a decision, and we are open to being held accountable. We've had lots of conversations with many of you on different levels as to why we're doing what we're doing. 
And we don't feel above, um, above the law or above questions or above scriptures. We are open to being scrutinized by you. You are all prophets, priests, and kings in the kingdom of God. Okay, and so you have the word of God in front of you, and we invite you to test our conclusions. Oh, I don't want to skip that. That's a very important part. So that's the standpoint of our instruction. We're elders. We're making decisions, and that's how we make them, and it's hard, and we're trying our best. That's not to say pity us. It's to say we're not taking it lightly. Now, let's look at the responsibility given to God's people, because this is what, this is what it comes down to for us. How you and your family respond to COVID-19 and its restrictions is a matter of family governance. I want to stress that. Nobody is, is compelled from the church to run your family in any way that is neither here nor there in terms of public worship. We are overseeing the public worship at Evergreen Chapel. And that's where our focus is. So I want to look at what is the responsibility given to God's people. Turn to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 3. The primary purpose and responsibility of God's people, and Kevin Amber's this, is worship. He says every time he opens a psalm, he says, welcome to the public worship of the living God. That is so instructive for us, and it's so simple. Man, does that ever make church simple, right? We're here to worship. Everything else is secondary, because when worship is right in your life, other things line up. The default mode of humanity is harmony with God. You can see that in the creation account. Adam and Eve were made in harmony not only with each other, but with God. He would walk with them in the garden. This is like a foreshadowing of our future with God, that we will walk with him. And so the default position of humanity is harmony with our creator, our God, our maker. Therefore, anybody who resists or hates God is by, excuse me, is by definition in need of reconciliation, right? Anybody you meet that is resisting God has something they need fixed. Not because they're less than you. You once needed that same thing fixed. You needed a reconciliation to God. You needed hostility between you and God fixed. You know what it's like when you have a, a fight with a, a close friend or a tiff with your spouse, heaven forbid? You know that you need that reconciled. You, you can't just live pretending it doesn't exist. Therefore, in a post-sin world, since Adam and Eve fell into sin, Worship is what primarily signifies reconciliation. Okay, so if, if you see a husband and a wife walking down the street holding hands, we could say that's the symbol of worship. Some husbands and wives, you know, they, they may be good at putting on a face, and the analogy is not perfect. But for the most part, if I'm walking down the street with Shannon and we're hand in hand, we're feeling good. We're reconciled. We're on the same page. And so in the same way, anybody who is truly worshiping God is signifying to the world, me and God, we're good. We're, I know him now. I don't hate him anymore. I'm not under his judgment anymore. I'm free. This is why worship is so characterized by joy. But what we need to recognize, though, is that this alienation takes some work to fix. It doesn't just happen because you want it to. It takes some form of work. That work is called atonement. 
Atonement means to cover your sin, to make up for your sin, to correct your sin. This is a, a critical passage in Genesis 3. Just flip over a page. Look at Genesis 3, verse 8. This is after Adam and Eve sinned. They heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, which normally would have been a delightful sound, wouldn't it have been? <clears throat> God's coming. Let's go see him. That would have been something to enjoy and anticipate if you were Adam and Eve. But what happens? The man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. It almost brings tears to my eyes to think of that. When they hear God coming, they go and they hide. God who had loved them and created them. God who gave Adam his partner, his, his, his bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. God who had filled the garden with things for them to do and enjoy, and they hid themselves. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? That's, that's been going on through history. That's how you got saved. God said, Where are you? Where are you, Dean? Right? It's like that's how you get saved, is you hear God say, where are you? And he said, verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. In other words, I was ashamed. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? In other words, are you ashamed because you sinned? Rhetorical question, yes. We who are apart from God live in shame because we have sinned against our God. And so what happens in chapter 4? We see those first sacrifices from the two children of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Cain brought an offering of his produce, or of his bounty, and Abel brought an offering of his bounty. And Cain's, who was not offered in faith, rose up against his brother Abel because he was jealous of Abel's forgiveness, and he killed him. This is the first sacrifice, and Jesus speaks of the blood of Abel crying out for generations, the, almost the first prophet in that sense. And so what happened there was that worship began to be a signal of atonement. Worship in the Old Testament took the form of sacrifice. When you see Noah get out of the ark, you should read that story. What's the first thing he does? He gets down and he builds an altar for worship because God spared him judgment on the sea. He built him a boat. He got, got him into the boat. Likewise, if you're quick with your fingers, go to Genesis chapter 22. This is one of those famous stories in the scriptures that we don't always understand, and I hope we do a little bit more this morning. This is how God's people are called to interact with God. It's to signal and signify atonement, to cover for sin. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, right? Calls him. Abraham answers, here I am. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. That's a sober call from God. This child that Abraham had waited decades for, the promised child through whom the whole nations would be blessed. And he's just told Abraham to go sacrifice him, to take him up a mountain and sacrifice him. How does Abraham respond? Early in the morning, verse 3, he saddled his donkey and took the two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. 
and he cut wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. Listen to this. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship. And we will come back to you. He's being told to sacrifice his only son. And he says, I'm going to worship. I'm going to worship my God. In Hebrews, we're told that Abraham's faith was so great that he believed, because Isaac was the son, that if he killed him and sacrificed him, that God would bring him back to life. This is why he said, then we will return. We're going to worship, and then we're going to come back. This is one of the most thrilling foreshadows in the whole Old Testament, because what we see is that God commands the unthinkable. God actually judged Israel because of the king, one of the kings, Manasseh, who would sacrifice children to God. God hated child sacrifice. The whole New Testament is full of the preciousness of children. So how could God command the unthinkable? But then what happens when Abraham raises his knife? He sees a ram caught in the thicket. God had provided a replacement for the son. So Isaac climbs off the altar, and together they worship God with the ram, and that is foreshadowed in Christ, who would come as God's only son, who would come back to life, who climbed on the altar to atone for our sin. So worship as an event that celebrates our reconciliation to God centers around the sacrifice. It centers around an altar. It centers around a replacement for you. As we, Isaac, deserved to die, Abraham deserved to die, the ram who was suddenly caught in the thicket is foreshadowing Jesus Christ himself, who appeared to deal with our sin. I want to look at a couple passages in Hebrews. If you can go to Hebrews chapter 9. I want to solidify this in our minds. Hebrews 9.19. There's a couple verses. Hebrews 9.19 says, For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. So we can see that blood signifies the ceremony of worship in the Old Testament. Then down in verse 22, it goes on, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why does Christianity center around blood? Because without blood, you are not forgiven. Then over to 26, 926 says this, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly, he being the high priest, since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared, that is Jesus Christ, the great high priest, once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You hear that? Christ put away sacrifice. This is why we do not sacrifice a lamb on Sunday morning worship. The point is, the drop is, in this section, is that in terms of worship, when Christ came, he did not abolish worship or reinvent it. He became its object. He became the object of worship. Christ became our sacrifice, and he is our central 
point of focus in our worship. Sunday mornings are about Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice for us. You'll see why we're going where we're going when you understand that. That's why we're here on Sunday mornings. That is why we're here. It is to recall the sacrifice of Jesus Christ once and for all for our sin. He became the object of our worship. Now, when I say worship, a lot of us have some baggage that's been downloaded from the last however many years of following Christ. And we often want to truncate worship down to the Romans 12.1 definition, which is worship God in your bodies as your spiritual act of Present your bodies as a spiritual act of worship, pleasing and acceptable to God. And so we make worship totally personal to us. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, this morning, I'm worshiping God in creation. <laughs> no. Or, you know, this morning, I am worshiping God, you know, with my friends. And you only ever hear that on a Sunday morning. Right? If you go fishing on a Wednesday, it's just fishing. But if you go on a Sunday morning, it's worship. <laughs> and I'm not trying to poke fun at anybody. I'm just saying that's how we've been trained to think, right? It's like, well, if I can't go to church, I can just substitute that with whatever form of worship is relevant to me. And here's the deal. We do worship God through everything we do. Absolutely. First Corinthians says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. That's one of the pillars of our church. One of the pillars of our church is that whatever job you have, you don't have to be a priest or, or a pastor or a missionary to have a holy job. Your job is holy when you do it to God's glory, whether you're a welder or a construction um, worker or a teacher or a lawyer, your job is holy unto God. Yes, everything we do is unto the Lord. But what we miss when we only think about that is worship's formal prescription. Okay, so worship has informal properties every single day. Paul says, pray without ceasing, rejoice in all things. Worship has many informal applications. When you drive home with your wife or your friend or after, you, you delight in and you worship God, thanking them for him, for your friendships and for the the. Even a turkey. We praise God for those. But what we're missing when that's all we think of as worship is worship's formal prescription. And we are very averse to formality in the modern church. We're very averse to formality. We don't want anything being regular because what if something better comes up? Right? So I want to look at the mode of formal worship. What is the mode of formal worship? We've seen the object of our worship, which is Jesus Christ. I don't think any of us disagree on that. But what is the mode of worship? In other words, what's the, what is the vehicle that this worship primarily gets in to go places? What's the vehicle of our formal worship? Again, this is not to diminish informal worship. This is to say, as a church, I, I don't oversee your informal worship. But I have been called to oversee your formal worship. So this is where the standpoint from which I'm speaking on behalf of our elders. We've seen this before, and I'm not going to go into these passages. I've spoken on it before, but Christ, if you look at Hebrews chapter 4 and onward, is shown to be God's Sabbath rest for the believer, <clears throat> right? So that when you come to Christ, you rest from your works. You rest from your works. That doesn't mean all Christians go on unemployment. <laughs> 
it means that the turmoil and the working that you do to please God stops when you come to Christ. You lay down your good works and you begin to walk in the good works that are put out before us by God, which is what Ephesians says. That even the good works you do when you're in Christ, they're not yours. God made them and you walk into them like you put on an outfit. You walk in the good works that God has set apart. So in Christ, we find our final rest, our Sabbath, in him. Now, what is Sabbath? We read it this morning, read it this morning, the fourth commandment. It is six days you shall labor, and on the seventh you shall rest. For in six days God created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh he rested from his work. <coughs> this may be a Sunday school question, but was God tired on Saturday at the end of the week? No. No. He didn't need to go to the beer fridge and say, boy, what a tough week making the world. God is perfectly able and infinitely strong. So why did he rest on the seventh day? For us. He gave us a pattern. Six days shall you labor, and on the seventh you shall rest. And so this pattern of worship set out in the Old Testament is still relevant today. Now here's what I love about how it shifts in the New Testament, is that the Old Testament Sabbath was Saturday. Sunday is the first day of the week. As a kid, I was always confused when Saturday and Sunday were at different ends of the calendar, because to me, Friday was the end of the week, and the weekend, whew, party time, right? So Sunday is the beginning of the week, Saturday is the final day, the Jewish Sabbath was Saturday, which was the end of the week. I love that in the new creation, in the new covenant, the Sabbath day is the beginning of the week. It's what sets our minds forward as opposed to back. We don't look back on the work. We look ahead to what God is doing. We look ahead to the consummation of the kingdom. We look ahead to the redemption of all things, which began on the first day. Scripture says that Christ is the firstborn of all creation and that we will all follow him in his resurrection. So Christ being raised on the first day of the week, the Sabbath, sorry, the Lord's Day, Sunday, it became the pattern of the New Testament church to adopt the pattern of worship on a weekly cycle and move it to Sunday and then change the object of the worship from a lamb to the lamb of God. You see that? How beautiful that the lamb of God is celebrated on his day, the Lord's day, the beginning of the week, and we remember his resurrection. Once a year, all Jewish people were required to travel to the temple to offer sacrifice. Worship was always, in some fashion, an in-person event. Jeremiah 3 is one of those passages, and I think Wendy and I spoke with this this morning, where God highlights a wicked ruler by when they allow worship under every green tree and on every hill. In other words, when the king says, eh, God doesn't really care how you worship. You can just go do it over here and over there. That's not an indictment against Christmas trees, by the way, which some people think it is. Christmas trees are great. That's not what that verse is about. That verse is about if you think you don't have to go to the temple to worship God, you think you can redefine worship for God. God says no. It's wickedness. To go off and do your own thing, isolated and controlling your own little world and doing worship how you want to do it, God says, no, I have formally prescribed worship. And so in the New Testament, the assembled church, which by the way is redundant. I'll explain that in a minute. The assembled church is granted the authority of God when it meets. 
Matthew chapter 18, you've, you've all heard this verse, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. For decades, how many of you have been to a Bible study where only four or five people show up? And someone's like, yeah, the Lord, where two or three are gathered. We've always taken comfort in that reality that when we are together, the authority of Christ is with us. And yet now many churches are begging that we need not observe the first part of that verse to get the results of the second. What changed? Together we are strong. Together God is strong. Many churches, and we have been told this as well, is that there are many interpretations for how a church may quote-unquote gather. There's no historic or linguistic reason or ability to define the word in any other way as though instead of to come together. A similar a syn a synonym is used for marriage in the scriptures. Try having a virtual marriage <laughs> and see how long that lasts. It doesn't. In the same way, the church is called to assemble. The word ecclesia, which is translated church, in the, um, in the John Nelson Darby Bible, which I don't read, and I don't agree with a lot of the closed brethren positions doctrinally, but what I will say they got right is that they translate that word assembly to assemble. If you remember middle school, it's like there's an assembly on Friday. I loved it because you got to leave your classroom and go and sit with all the other kids and fool around while the principal said some things. <laughs> an assembly meant that the, that the school came together. Nobody ever said there's an assembly in our hearts on Friday. That would be mighty disappointing. Well, we're going to have an assembly, but it's just going to be in your heart. <laughs> and no, I want to see my friends from the other class that I don't get to see. The word ecclesia means assembly. And so Lord willing, there will be physical and corporate worship every single Lord's Day, which will include all the elements that the scripture lays out for worship as far as we are able. Now, we don't own our own building, so we're doing our best. Uh, but the Lord, I, I believe, is going to provide for that. Meeting in person on the Lord's Day is critical. Doctrinally, it's critical for us. It's critical to retell what has gone on in our lives, to be a witness to the world. So let's talk about the state and its role in society, because we have to address what's going on, because these are all things that are great in, up in our minds. We can all agree on these things, but how do we obey them, and how do we observe them in the real world? When COVID restriction is rampant, when, when there are things encroaching upon our convictions that we all just said amen to. How are we going to live these out when people come along and say no? We're going to look at that real quick. And I know this is a little bit longer than we're used to, but I, I, I feel this is so critical for us to understand. So the church's response to COVID-19 isn't so much because of the disease itself, uh, which is affecting people, which is causing deaths, which is causing a lot of respiratory uh, discomfort. And I mean, who's had the flu for two weeks in bed? It's, it's horrendous. Some of us who know people who have maybe even died at stages in their life from that. It, the reality is there is a disease, there is an illness. But what makes it complicated for the church is the restrictions that have come in to respond to it. So that's why we're addressing this. We have to figure out how to observe and how to navigate state-mandated lockdowns, controls, restrictions, and bans. So I'm talking about the state very quickly, and you don't have to go there, but Romans chapter 13, you've probably all heard this quoted at some point in the last six months. Submit to your governing authorities, for they are a servant of God. They are a diaconate or a deacon of God to execute judgment 
Therefore fear them, for they do not bear the sword in vain. In other words, God gave the state or the government a tool. You know what tool he gave them? A sword. He gave them a sword. By the way, you know what tools he gave other institutions? He gave the church a set of keys to the kingdom. We have keys. You know what he gave the family? He gave the family the rod of discipline. So that, in a very quick nutshell, will tell you what each institution is responsible to do. So the state is given a narrow ministry of punishing via the sword. And that analogy is not given flippantly. It is a device that is a lethal device. And to punish evil is to find in God's word what that standard for evil is. So the state is beholden to God in the same way the family is. They just don't have the same job. They don't have the same responsibility. And so the state must define evil and enforce it by the standard of God's word, not a social contract. That's what's dangerous about democracy, is that when the social contract changes and the government enforces that contract, it can stray so far from the word of God. Democracy only works when the people fear the Lord. Otherwise, it's a de degeneration into paganism and redefining all sorts of things. So the state, I must add, is not responsible for the Great Commission. They're not called by God to go and make disciples. Not their job. Do you know what else is not their job? To maintain a pure church. Do you know what else is not the government's job? To educate your children. Do you know what else is not the state's job? To oversee hospitals, child welfare, wage regulations, or any other such thing. If you look at the scriptures, they are not responsible to do those things. Canadians have given the government an astonishing reach of authority. An astonishing reach of authority. Every single year in an election, we give more and more responsibility to the government. Authorities campaign on the promise to do more and more and more for you, and they swallow up areas that in past generations belong to the family, the church, and the individual. And so we now live in an environment that much of us cannot see past. We can't see into past generations where it was unthinkable that the government would have a say in how your children are raised. By the way, there are parents in this country facing jail time for not following through on a child's perverted sexual wishes. Jail time. We're not talking about, this is enforcing by the sword the family jurisdiction. The Liberal government has a bill that is uh, set to pass, it has the support of the NDP, which will make it illegal by punishment of jail time to counsel a minor to accept the body that they are in if they're experiencing gender confusion, which many do. You face five years in prison if you counsel that child to embrace the body that God gave them and to follow a scriptural pathway for sexuality. That's becoming illegal. This is not fear-mongering. This is a bill that is set to pass the House of Commons probably this year. Friends, the state has no business redefining the family, sexuality, health care, any of those things. But it does. And so we turn around and look in our Bibles and we say, oh, submit to the government. Not in those things, no. The government won't tell me how my children are to be raised. The government won't tell me what my children are to believe. I will do that. That's what God has given me to do. And for you, I won't tell your children. I won't educate your children. I am your elder, not your children's educator. 
And so, friends, this is the environment that we've, we're like frogs that have been cooked slowly until the water got hotter and hotter, and we don't see how far our culture has strayed from the Word of God. And so we do no favors to the world. We do not exercise our prophetic voice when we say, yes, tell us what to do with all of these areas. Now, that's a setup to address the mandates that have been put in place in response to COVID. Now, again, a real disease with real medical consequences. Absolutely. And I will, will make this point later, but everybody has to respond in whatever way they feel is appropriate for their own health. I don't know your health background. I don't know your underlying conditions. I cannot make that decision for you. We are responsible to do those things on our own. And the scripture actually gives us a warrant to maintain our own bodies in honor, to care for them, to exercise, to eat well, to take care of our own health, to do all of those things for God's glory. So the state has mandated social distancing. Uh, this is just a list. I'm not making judgments on any of these. I'm just telling you this is a list. Social distancing, Mask wearing, closure of businesses, forced closure of businesses, group limits or total bans, uh, which have resulted, again, this is reporting facts, which has resulted in people dying alone in hospitals, families who have not been allowed to visit sick uh, family members or mourn uh, the death of their loved ones at funerals. This has resulted in missed diagnoses in the thousands, cancers and other ailments. It has resulted in a spike in domestic violence, and in suicide rates, in the name of curtailing a disease with a 99.99 survival rate for those who contract it. It's lower for the wider society. Those are facts. I'm, I'm just trying to say that's, that's what's been put in place, and that's the reality that we are dealing with. Now, it will infect some people. It's a 99.99%. I'm not saying it is non-existent, but I'm saying those are the measures, and those are the reality. It's a little bit like killing a housefly with a machine gun, to use an analogy that hopefully we understand. By my count, and this is where this comes in contact with the church, by my count, I'm going to share with you the specific biblical commands which are violated by observing the spectrum of those minutes which have been handed down. Now again, this is a leadership decision. You are welcome to reject this and say that we're wrong. You're probably. You are. If, if you judge this to be an incorrect application of the scriptures, but I'm going to share with you, by my count, and this is a very light survey of just the New of mostly just the New Testament. Singing. Ephesians 5.19 says, Address one another with spiritual songs and hymns. Well, that has to have been set aside for certain COVID measures. Uh, your ability to work. If your business was shut down or if your business was deemed non-essential, you would be forced to violate the fourth commandment, which is six days shall you work. Uh, Hebrews 10.25 says, do not forsake the gathering together of one another. So that's something else that we've been asked to set aside. That's three. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Okay, you don't have to kiss, but an application of this would be handshakes, hugs, whatever. Uh, physical affection would be a way. Of, that's been prohibited by social distancing uh, commands. That's Romans 16.16. 6, 16. James uh, 5.14 tells the elders to lay hands on the sick. Also restricted by uh, COVID restrictions. You can't, you have to stay uh, isolated if you're symptomatic, whereas the elders are called to lay hands on those. First Corinthians 11 says, when you come together to eat, well, you're not allowed to share meals or do potluck under these restrictions or come together at all in some circumstances. Matthew 18 says, bring sin before the church. 
That's also not possible if you're not meeting. Uh, each member supplying its gift for unity. That's Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, that's also not possible if the church is not meeting. That's 8. And between 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, I found 7 more that cannot be applied unless the church is together. So my question is, how many and for how long is the church willing to say, we can set those things aside? My response is the answer is zero days. Zero days. We will obey God and his word. And I'm not going to buy, here's where it comes down to it. I'm not going to bind the conscience, unlike our government. I refuse to bind the conscience of any individual outside what the scripture commands. So I would be causing you to sin if I'm depriving you of exercising any of those biblical commands. That it being essential to to worship, pray, sing, fellowship, which includes bearing one another's burdens, Galatians 6, 2, and breaking bread, which we did last week. After those things, you must live according to your conscience. And I am delighted to see some of you taking your own medical decisions into your hands, whether it is essential or important for you to wear a mask or whether it is not. That is a choice that is for you and your family and yourselves. And I applaud every single one of you for making whatever decision is right for you. I don't know what the capacity of this room is, but the state mandates right now that we don't allow more than 30% of the room to be in here. So who was last in? You don't have to put your hand You probably, if I was obeying the state mandate, should have turned you away. I won't turn anybody away from the church. I won't do it. I won't do it because in John chapter 6, Christ says, whoever the Father gives me, I will in no wise cast any out. The church will not participate in things that violate the commands of the scripture. So again, I will not scorn somebody for whether it's wearing a mask or being cautious and sitting a little bit distant from everybody else or even staying home because they are compromised. If that is your medical decision and if that is what you need to do during this time, that is for you to decide. What I am doing is saying, this is how the church, when we meet together, this is what we will be doing. And I will not compel anybody, one way or the other, to adopt those things. Here's why. There are biblical principles which, if they are neglected, are far more harmful than the contraction of COVID-19. I'll give you some examples. These are things that we do not enforce or bind your conscience with. Attending a prayer meeting, not required to come to this church. Kevin and Carol host one every Sunday night. How and where and from whom your child is educated. That's a matter for you to decide, not the church. We do not enforce any method of those things for you to belong to this church. Church attendance, we don't even enforce that. We encourage and open the doors and we uh, we are delighted for people to join us, but we don't make it a requirement. We don't take attendance or chastise people for not. So we do not enforce those things. Your tithing and your offering, it's not enforced. If you belong to the Catholic Church, it's actually enforced. You get a bill in the mail. You belong to the Catholic Church. Now that's their prerogative, that's what they do, but we don't enforce any of those things. Yet neglecting a lot of those elements are far more harmful to your eternity and your life and the future of your family than the contraction of a disease. Hear this, even if it kills you. Even if it kills you, there are worse things that can happen to you than dying. 
Jesus said, do not fear the one who is able to destroy the body, but fear the one who is able to destroy the body and the soul. So friends, I will not step over those things which our church grants freedom of conscience to. I will not step over those things and say, but I will enforce with an iron fist your medical decisions. And so I will take flack and criticism for saying, why don't you enforce people to wear masks? Because I won't do it either way. I will not marginalize you or mock you if that is your medical decision. But neither will I enforce those around you to do the same. I'm just trying to enforce what the scriptures say in the gathering of this church. This, none of this applies when we leave here. This is the meeting of Evergreen Chapel here Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock. Jesus is the head of the church. And his word will dictate how and what we do. When we worship and with whom we worship and in what manner we execute that worship. Christ will decide those things. Christ will decide those things. The state has no right to determine how worship will be conducted. I am not trying to start a revolution. All I want to do is quietly worship. All I want to do is show up for church on Sunday morning. That's what I want. I don't care if nobody pays attention or gives a rip what we're doing. That's what I want. That's what I prayed for. I don't want attention. I want to worship with you guys. So i got to wrap this up. I know this has been long. What can we do? Well, we can promote Christian order. God is not a God of chaos, but of order. And so when we respect the jurisdictions that he set up, the family, the state, and the church, then we prophesy as to the order that God has set. We prophesy as to the future of the kingdom. So we're going to stay out of your lane. If you're, if you're a father and you're the head of your home, we're going to stay out of your lane. We're going to, we're going to disciple you, but we're not going to get up in your grill about decisions you're making in your home unless they're sinful. In the same way, we're going to get out of the way if one of you commit a crime that needs to be reported to the police, we're going to report you to the police. Because that's not our jurisdiction. That's not our lane. And in the same way, if the state comes in and says, hey, church, this is what you can or cannot do on a Sunday morning. This is what you can or cannot preach on a Sunday morning. We say, not your lane. Not your lane, government. Because when we give into that, we collapse and corrupt the order that God has set in the world, which is good. We ought to respect the state in its lane. We ought to point others to the state and say, you need to submit in matters of justice to the state. But we will not collapse and confuse those realities. We foreshadow, however imperfectly, the company of the redeemed, singing the heavenly song, holy, holy, holy. That's what we do. We're just here to foreshadow the kingdom to everybody. We're here to talk about it. We're here to recall the goodness of God. And we are here to promote that every single week so that you will be built up in Christ. That's what we're going to do. So what can you do? You can plan for worship. You can be here. Set aside your ties to God. Give faithfully to the church where you see the church of God obeying his scriptures. Attend with your children. Invite friends. Be charitable and confident with those who disagree. Test everything against scripture. Whether it's me or Justin Trudeau or Doug Ford or Mayor Pankow, test it against the word of God. Test it. Let me pray and then we're going to close with the hymn.